everyone. Welcome to the Cultivate Podcast through the Grove Church. I'm Charlie Lofton, the lead pastor there, and thank you so much for joining us. And we've been spending some time over the last few episodes talking about deconstruction and what it means to kind of have a crisis of faith where you start to question and challenge kind of what you really believe about God and who you are and who Jesus is and kind of what are some things that can get people there and how to love people who are going through that. And then just also what are the the key principles on which we need to rebuild? I've got a sermon series that we've been doing at the church as well. It's been kind of going alongside of it. And kind of with that, we've kind of had these three principles that, that go with it, where the three kind of rebuilding planks of our faith are to re- recognize that God is good and he loves you. That it is our sin collectively that we have committed that has broken the world. And that ultimately Jesus Christ, the son of God, it is, it is his life, his death and resurrection that um, reconciles us back to God. And with those three principles, we've been kind of asking three kind of corresponding questions that people tend to ask when these issues come up. One was kind of around creation. It's like, what do I really need to believe the creation story and about how God created us? And we kind of ended up uh, with the conclusion that, you know, there's less pressure, I think, about believing every detail of Genesis 1 through 3 as much as it is a real deep belief in that we were created in the image of God that we are separate from this creation, a special, unique creation of God that God loves. And then again, it is our sin that broke that. And we are not a part of the sin and death and destruction cycle that would define our ancestry if what we were taught about evolution were 100% true. And then last week, we kind of talked a little bit about the problem of evil, that you know we see that, hey, we broke the world. But again, looking at how broken it is, and how bad things are, it makes us start to question the goodness of God or maybe the power of God. So we spend some time talking a little bit about the question around the problem of evil. How can God be good and all-powerful and so much be bad going on in the world? And we're finishing up this series with the question about Jesus. We say that Jesus is the answer, that he, it is, our, it is a faith and trust in Jesus that reconciles us back to God. And so the question that people ask very often is, well, is Jesus the only way? Are there any number of ways that we can be reconciled back to God? And again, there are a lot of different ways to answer this question. I, will, I am not the first. I am not the one millionth person to try to answer this question in, the, in, a, in a podcast, in a book, in a sermon, in a blog post, in a conversation. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very important and a very significant question. And really could be its own series. I'm sure we have talked about it multiple times just in this podcast alone that really hasn't existed for very long. It's an issue that comes up a lot. It's a very, it's a very important one because it really kind of helps us understand what did Jesus' death on the cross accomplish? Why is it important? And really, was it essential? Did Jesus really have to die? In order for us to be reconciled to God, did Jesus have to die? And I think that's an important reframing that I like to do in discussing the question, is Jesus the only way to God? Essentially, what you're asking is, did Jesus have to die? If Jesus, if Jesus isn't the only way, there are other ways to be reconciled to God. Jesus didn't have to die. And now Jesus' death becomes more of a tragic event. It becomes more of a martyrdom. It becomes more of a good guy. A good guy was was falsely accused, tortured, and killed. 
but it really doesn't have any sort of theological necessity as much as it does kind of creates a moral imperative and helps us understand the significance of sin and our sinfulness and kind of look at what people are, are capable of. Look how we treated someone who was sent here by God, and it should give us a moment of pause, or it gives us a moment of positive pause to see how Jesus was willing to allow this to happen to him and his his humility, his kindness, his tolerance. But it really wasn't, you know, it wasn't essential. He didn't, he didn't have to die. And so in order to answer this question, and again, I hope that you listen to the sermon that kind of predates this, at least chronologically, around who Jesus is and why it was important that he die. But I think it's important, even if you haven't seen that, for me to kind of review that just a little bit to understand kind of some key principles in Scripture. Romans 6.23, for one, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What we have earned because of our sin, sin has a consequence. Sin broke the world, sure, but it has a consequence. Evil has consequences. When you do something bad, bad things happen. Sometimes people may seem like they get away with it, but even the people who are getting away with it, there's internal and external consequences. There are always consequences to doing evil. And there are consequences beyond just kind of the normal ins and outs of life. It had a consequence in our relationship with God. It was destructive. It was destructive of that relationship. A good, perfect, and holy God. We have sinned against him, and it caused a significant breach in the relationship. And that's what Paul's talking about here. The wages of sin, the consequence of that, what we've earned because of that is death. This sort of the physical death and the spiritual separation that comes because of our sin. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's something that Jesus did. He is the one. And another verse that really, I think, explains kind of the how of this really well is in 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So the suffering and the death that he did was a righteous person dying for the unrighteous person in order, why? To bring us to God, which implies, of course, that we initially were separated from God. Like like Romans 6 says, like we were separated from God, but he died. He suffered in order to bring us to him. He died. He suffered on our behalf. He took the suffering that we had earned because of the wage. He took it on himself and did this for us in order that we might be reconciled back to God. Now, Paul says this also in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, you know, what he's talking about, again, that's why important to kind of go back to verse six, you know, is in, in, this, in this image that Paul is making here is that he's talking about somebody who might would sacrifice their life to save somebody else. You might do it for a good guy. Maybe, like maybe, very rarely will someone do this. So you might, someone, you, might, you, might, you might do this. You might die for someone. So he's saying, in the end, this is, this is dying in someone's place is what he's talking about. I'm dying to save someone. 
He says, then God demonstrates his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Again, this is where the idea of substitutionary atonement comes from, that what needed to happen, the consequence of our sin is death. And Jesus dies for us in our place. God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, people try to make that mean different things, what it means that Jesus died for us. But in the context here of what Paul's talking about, I think it becomes very clear he's using as illustrations about how to show how great it was. I mean, Jesus died for us when we were in a bad place. He talks about how you might would die for someone else if they were really, really good. Again, in a substitutionary way, would you die to, for, to protect someone else, to prevent someone else from having to die? And if it, again, a substitute, I'm willing to take on a punishment for me that was meant for you. It looks like you're about to die. I will die for you in your place. And so I, I believe that if you look at the, the totality of, of what the scriptures say about why Jesus had to die, it was in order to reconcile us to God. It was in order to bring us to God. It was in order to save us. It was in our place. It was to pay a price for us that he did not want us to have to pay for ourselves. And so you can ask again, the question, is Jesus the only way? But if you reframe it, was it necessary for Jesus to die? Yes, it was necessary because a price had to be paid. Either you have to pay it or someone else has to pay it. And the reason why Jesus is able to pay it is because he is the son of God. If I were to die for you, uh, that would be me, one person dying for one person. Imagine somehow that I were able to be a perfect person and didn't deserve death. I could die in your place and that would save you, one of you, because I'm one person. But when the son of God dies as a sacrifice, again, Romans 5, Romans 8, just over again, it, it is something that then allows everyone to be able to be reconciled to God because of who Jesus is. So it's not only, it wasn't just that someone needed to be a sacrifice. It had to be someone who had the ability to pay this cost for all of us. So it had to be, this is something again, Philippians chapter two, John chapter one, that Jesus, the son of God is equal with God, the father. God had to send his son to die for us in order for us to be reconciled. It can't just be somebody. It had to be someone who could pay for all of us. And so let's just, I was about, I was about to start getting philosophical. Let's first just kind of make sure we understand a couple of key verses. We ask the question, is Jesus the only way? Let's, what does Jesus say to that question? Verse five, John chapter 14, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus is talking about going to go be with the Father. And like Thomas is like, we don't know what you're talking about. Can you show us the way to the Father? And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And again, each, if, even if he didn't say the thing right after it, no one comes to the Father except no one comes to the Father except through me, which is very explicit. There is no other way to get to the Father except through me. Very explicit. But even if he hadn't said that, 
even before that. Hey, show us, show us the way. Can you show us how to get from here to heaven? Can you get us from here to God? Can you show us the way? He's asking for directions. I guess, you know, like, you have to be metaphorical, right? I mean, it's not like, hey, you know, right behind that cloud. I mean, how do I, how do I get there? And he doesn't describe anything that they have to do, anything that they have to believe. I, I am the way. Not I show you the way, not I point to the way, not I am a way, not I know the way. He is who he is. And then he just he adds to that, I am the truth. He is not someone who speaks true things. He is always true. He is never false. He is truth and the life, not someone who knows about life, not someone who's living life, not someone who is full of life. He is life. Again, these, these, very, these, these declarative statements that Jesus is making about himself, these, this, these absolutes that he is saying around himself, this is who he is. He is I, I, I need to understand what's true about God. Jesus is truth. I want to have life with God. He is life. I want to know the way to God. He is the way. Not he knows those things, not that he points to those things. He is those things. And therefore, the thing that he says at the end is actually the least controversial thing that he says. No one comes to the Father except through me. We'll look at one more um, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the people. So again, this idea of ransom, he, 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 he died to pay a price. He died to pay a price for you. This needed to happen. In our sermon series, we've, we, we stayed in Genesis there for a little while before we started talking about Jesus specifically. We see that right after Adam and Eve sinned, they felt ashamed, they felt guilty, they were hiding from God, they were blaming God, they were blaming each other, and they tried to cover themselves with leaves. But what, what God did is like he replaced their leaves with the skins of, an animal, of animals that he sacrificed on their behalf, really setting this picture of sin has such a big consequence that it requires a sacrifice to overcome it. Now, be a part of you that feels like that that's, you know, primitive, it's gross, killing, that somehow death has to be involved. It may make God feel weird to you. But every weird thing that you feel is meant to be channeled into, this is a much bigger deal than I realize that it is. Because I think there is a heart behind the question of, is Jesus the only way around the idea of like, the gap that happens because of our sin is not that big. Because other world religions, even some branches of fake Christianity, really have like, okay, yes, sin's a big deal. It's caused a problem with God. Here is the moral code that you need to live by that will make things better. Here's how you now need to live. You were a sinner. Don't be a sinner by doing these things. You need to believe these things. You need to do these acts of contrition or penance. And if you do these things, if you say these things, if you perform these rituals, if you act this way, then you can now be on the right path. You were on the wrong path. Get on the right path. And if that's all that's going on here, and the analogy that gets used, 
God is at the top of a mountain. We're at the bottom of the mountain. There are lots of ways to get to the top of a mountain. If you start running away from the mountain, you won't get there. And that's what sin is. You're running away from the mountain. But you can, once you decide, hey, I don't want to run away from that. I want to get to the top of the mountain. There are lots of ways to get there. And again, if that is all that's happened, is sin has kind of got us on a wrong path and we need to get back onto a right path, then it would make sense that there would be other ways. You know, Adam and Eve made a bad decision. And so now they need to start making better decisions. But that's not what God said to them. They were full of shame and they began to cover themselves and they were hiding and they were blaming. And God didn't say, hey, I need to get you back on the right path. There was a punishment. There was a banishment from his presence and a sacrifice that was made on their behalf. And we see that cover to cover in scripture. The consequence of sin is a separation from God. And the only way to be reconciled is through sacrifice which then points us to Jesus. And so if there were theoretically some other idea out there where someone sacrificed themselves in a significant way who did it in order to pay the price for our sins and because of their very nature, being in nature God, they had the ability to do that, then maybe there would be some rival path. But there, there is not one. And it doesn't really make sense that there would be. Jesus didn't need to die twice. Jesus, and if he had some twin brother, Jesus' twin brother doesn't also need to die. It only need to happen once. And this is what Paul says. There's just one mediator. So Jesus said, I'm the way. I, I, am, I am the way. And so it's not, again, it's not a question of what is the right moral path. If it were simply a question of moral path, yeah, I mean, the Christian moral path, the Mormon moral path, the, 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 the Muslim one, the Hindu one, the Buddhist one. I mean, they all have their pluses and minuses, I suppose. But all of them will ultimately make you a better person than just someone who is just operating purely on their own selfish instincts. And if all that was needed was to get you back trying to be a good person, then sure. But that's not what this is. There was a need to be reconciled to God and God established from the very beginning that sin is such a big deal that it requires sacrifice. And so then it really just becomes a question, well, how do I feel about that? Theologically, it makes sense. Biblically, it's pretty consistent. It's a question then of how do I feel about it? But I'm just telling you that to change, to, to, to change how you feel about that into any number of religious paths can get you there it has the effect of believing that sin just doesn't have the consequence that the Bible says that it does, that Jesus said that it did. It's just, sin is just an inconvenience. It is a problem that needs to be overcome as opposed to something that has separated us from God and requires sacrifice and reconciliation. Now, this very often leads us to ask a lot of other questions. Like what happens to somebody who grows up with a sincere faith of, of another kind? Is, 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 is God going to condemn them? God does not condemn somebody for having a sincere faith. God, uh, it, is, it is their sin that has condemned them. And having a sincere faith doesn't overcome the problem of sin. Sincerity in something has never been the standard. As long as you're 
God will accept you as long as you are sincere about what you believe. Most sinners are already very sincere. Um, the, the, they're, not, they're not disingenuous. They are, they are sincerely who they are. It's not a question of sincerity. It's a question of the consequence of sin, which is also in, in the second piece, like what about a person who just lives out in the middle of nowhere and never knows about Jesus at all? This is referred to as the noble savage, which I hesitate to say that because it sounds bad when you say it that way, but you may read it. Someone who just lives on their own and maybe they, they can learn about God from creation and they want to worship him, and, but they just never hear about Jesus. Again, you don't want to create theological positions based around um, hypotheticals about someone who may or may not actually exist. We actually need to think about it in terms of people that we know exist, namely you. That's not you. You know. So what is right for you? Do you need to follow Christ or not? It's like, well, you're being dismissive, Charlie, because these are serious theological questions. And I understand that. But I do think that it is important to answer the real question first. Do I need Jesus? And then I just need to reconcile and understand kind of the implications of that. And again, in having a theological conversation around, and I don't, I don't want there to be anything that sounds like that I'm dismissive or opposed to people who follow other religions or not concerned about the plight of people. This is why, if you continue on in the series, Mark talks about if all these things are true, how important then it is for us to, to tell people about who Jesus Christ is. It's important to talk about it. It's important to model it. Because we want, if this is where hope is, we want people to have that hope. We want them to know who Jesus Christ is. It com- it compels us forward. And so I know I don't want to have a cavalier attitude or somehow that's like that I, that I don't I don't care what because this I mean just for me personally and this is what I've given my life to. I've given my life and and I've you know my entire career up until this point I've never done anything but trying to be in a position where I can help people understand who Jesus Christ is. It matters to me. And so in the theological discussion, it may seem like we're just speaking academically, but it is also very personal. It's very personal because when I, when I interact with someone who, for whatever reason, they're, they're either hopeless or they have rejected who Jesus is, it always just makes me a little bit sad. You know, and because I, I, because this is honestly, this, this is, this is where I believe hope is. This is where I believe life is. This is where I believe the way is. This is where I believe truth is. And so I want people to experience that. And, and so, but again, as we have the academic discussion, I think it is important. Like, like when we begin to believe that there are a lot of different paths out there, it just slowly begins to minimize what Jesus did. But I'll end with this, and you'll like this better. Um, I trust fully in a God that is good, that is merciful, that is gracious, that is kind. And I understand that he's also holy. I also understand that he hates sin. I understand all those things. But I trust in the character of God. There may be some things I'm mistaken about. There may be more people in heaven than I realize. There may be more people that, 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 that I, I may be surprised. I trust what, I, what, I, what, what, what Jesus said. I trust what his word says. And it makes sense to me as I understand the depth of my own sin. But ultimately, it, I don't trust in my ability to process and interpret John 14, 1 Timothy 2, and Genesis chapter 3, the consequences of sin, Romans chapter 6. 
that I, that I'm, I'm not, I don't trust in my theological position. I trust in Jesus. He's the way. And I trust in a good God. And ultimately, all of these questions, just like we talked about last week around the problem of evil, that's where they all end us up. I trust that God is good and that God's heart, his passion, maybe right before the one God, one mediator verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. This is God's heart. He loves people. And I trust in that. And what he has revealed is what he's revealed to us about Jesus. And so that's what we believe. That's what we teach. But ultimately, I trust in God. I trust in him. And I know that he is a loving and compassionate God. And so it is of incredible importance for us to do everything that we can to help people know and to follow this great and glorious, compassionate God and, this, and his son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. Again, just scratching the surface. It's one of these things where it's like, you think, you know, I just look at my own schedule. It's like, okay, here's what I want these episodes to be. And I was like, man, these, these are, these are series, not, not episodes. So we're just scratching the surface. And so there may be some things that I said that were confusing or you have some more questions about, again, just come up to me and ask me about them. Let's spend some, spend some time together or just shoot me an email with some questions. I'd love to talk to you about it. Charlie at thegrovechurch.org. Because these are some of the most essential questions that we'll ask as we are deconstructing, reconstructing, building, rebuilding, deepening, understanding our faith and the implications of what we believe about God, about sin, and about his son, Jesus Christ. And so please, let's keep the dialogue going. And again, we're so thankful that you've joined us for this and for our sermon series. And I hope in some way it has been able to touch both your mind and your heart around what you believe and the implications of that. And again, we would love to see you on a Sunday, connect with you in some way. Go to thegrovechurch.org slash connect. Find what you need to know about joining us in person or joining us online. Either way, fill out, fill out, that, um, fill out that card that's there. Let us know that you're listening. And we would love to help you, support you any way that we can. Again, I'm Charlie Lofton, the lead pastor at The Grove. And thank you so much for joining us.